This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today and I'm here with Mark. Hey Mark. Hey, how you doing today? Good, how's you it going? You were at a ball game last night, pretty I'm late. I'm going to another one today too. You did already? No, no, I'm going to another one tonight. Oh, tonight. golly, you're a fanatic. Correct. Okay. Yeah, no, it's very... Cubs and Giants. Well, the Giants. Not a Cubs fan, for the record. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the podcast listens are going to go down dramatically. Yeah, because they're all from Chicago. No. Well, America <laughs> loves the Cubs. All right. It was hard enough finding Cubs fans in this office last year. All right. Anyway, who's joining us today? Today, we're joined by Joseph Lacanti. He's a history professor at the King's College in New York City. He previously served as Distinguished Visiting Professor at the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine. And he's the author of, most recently, God, Locke, and Liberty, The Struggle for Religious Freedom in the West. And as we were preparing this podcast, we found out he has another book out that has actually done pretty well. Joe, you need to tell us about that. Well, uh, Mark and uh, Morgan, thanks so much for having me on the show. Great to be with you. Uh, the book is called uh, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, and it's subtitled, a lengthy subtitle, uh, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis uh, Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. So that's that's the subtitle, or that's the book? <laughs> <laughs> that's the interminably long subtitle. A, a Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. And what I try to do in that book is to give some sense, how did the experience of combat, because both Tolkien and Lewis fought in the First World War, how might the experience of combat uh, have influenced their literary imagination. That's what the book tries that to explore. That is great. We'll have to bring you back on uh, to talk about that sometime. That sounds really interesting. So from what we understand, too, that book has, you know, been moderately successful, one could say. It had a very brief run on the New York Times bestseller list. I think it lasted for a week on there. Uh, but we'll take a week. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's enough to add your name, right? New York Times bestseller list. Bestselling author, yeah. That's correct. You're entitled to say it. So right up on the obituary, we'll put that on the obituary, <laughs> I suppose. Awesome. Well, we're really glad that you are here today. So actually, you're not here today, though, to talk about Tolkien or Lewis. We are going to talk about Niebuhr. So let's get into it. This year, we discovered that former FBI director James Comey had been an admirer of one of America's greatest theologians, though he didn't always identify as such, from what I understand. Comey came into the public eye when he decided last summer not to move forward with an investigation on Hillary Clinton's email server and then reopened the investigation last fall, very briefly before the election. Comey had been criticized by some Democrats who blamed him for Clinton's loss and now most recently has been blamed by the Trump administration, which has found itself at odds with him this spring over Russia. Then this month, President Trump fired Comey. Back in March, a journalist did some investigating and put two and two together to learn that someone using the Twitter handle or more like Twitter username, um, Reinald Niebuhr, had actually been the former FBI director. Comey not only used the theologian's name on Twitter, back in college he had written his college thesis juxtaposing Niebuhr and Jerry Falwell's approach to politics. Comey is not the only recent public figure influenced by the late theologian, whose admirers included people on the left and right, including Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, John McCain, and 
David Brooks. But Niebuhr, who wrote eloquently about pride and original sin, about justice and democracy, has been dead for nearly 50 years. What about his theology still resonates with so many political and thought leaders today? What ideas of his remain fiercely controversial? And most importantly, in what ways can Niebuhr inform the church about its political and moral responsibilities? So we have a bunch of questions to get into today because Niebuhr has so many interesting ideas that can really be relevant in our later discussion. And in fact, we published a piece last week that talked about theology, James Coney and Niebuhr, and kind of like looked at these very specifically on this case. Before we get into all of that, though, I want to just remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribing to our magazine, Christianity Today. And you can go do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And Mark, if I recall, you came into our meeting yesterday, really impressed by an editorial for our July-August issue. Yes, uh, it's by Matt Reynolds, and it talks about patriotism. And it's basically two cheers for patriotism. And while he understands that every Christian needs to be cautious about how how much allegiance we give to our country, because we've all seen examples when that goes overboard. But overall, it's a very careful and positive affirmation that it is appropriate for us to have some sort of pride in our nation and to celebrate its virtues. And I thought it was really well done. So Matt Reynolds is our books editor, FYI, for anyone who is wondering. And you can read that editorial, again, by subscribing to our publication, and that's going to be in our July-August issue. So again, go to orderct.com to get that. Before we get to hear what our guest has to say about Niebuhr, and believe me, we have lots of questions, I wanted to just do a gut check about this whole Niebuhr-Comey connection, which, again, as I mentioned earlier, has kind of been blowing up on our site since we published a piece last week. Mark, I would love to hear kind of your gut reaction when you found out that Comey was into Niebuhr. Whenever I see that happening among a public figure, I am, of course, very interested. And the next question I have is, so how did his interest or reading in Niebuhr, how did it affect the decisions he made in his office? So I've thought about that with Jimmy Carter. I've thought about that with Barack Obama. You can see times when they are playing the realist card quite quite clearly, which is what Niebuhr played. Uh, but I didn't know that much about Comey's administration, so I was glad to see some articles that came out subsequently, one that we published, that at least speculated on how Niebuhr influenced his actions as director of the FBI. You know, for me, Comey has been one of the most interesting figures in the political stage in the past year or so, partially because he's managed to make tremendous amounts of America unhappy for various reasons or another slash livid at him. I've been really interested to kind of know why he's opened himself up to such criticism, why he's put himself in sometimes a odd spotlight for an FBI director. Um, I don't want to get into too much of the politics right now, but he just has seemed someone that is driven by different motives, potentially, than other politicians. Well, he's not a politician, but other kind of political figures are. And so I wanted to kind of explore that more. And when this connection came across, you know, I took a couple politics classes in college where we discussed Niebuhr a little bit, but I was like, oh, I think this might give me a better framework to kind of understand who he is. And of course, you know, our piece that we wrote is a little bit speculative, but I think it does an interesting job looking at his actions in light of these ideas. All right. Sorry to ignore our guest this long. Exactly. <laughs> Joe, we are he, back to you. He actually has the most interesting <laughs> things to say of all. So let's get to it. 
Yeah. So first question for you, Joe, tell us some of the key things that anyone new to Niebuhr should know about what he believed. Terrific question, because you really can't understand Niebuhr's uh, political theology unless you appreciate the fact that his life was really bracketed by war. I mean, the guy lived through the First World War, and to be a young man now in his 20s, whatever he was, to be a young man to have lived through that conflict and the emotional, psychological aftermath of that conflict is kind of the starting place for understanding Niebuhr, because like so many men in his generation after the First World War and the carnage of it, the destructive power of that war, uh, he became essentially a pacifist in the 1920s, right up into the 1930s. It was a reaction against the First World War. And you can't understand the Second World War <laughs> unless you understand you know, kind of the reaction to the First World War. So here's Niebuhr now living in the 1930s, which is really when he's coming into his own as a public intellectual, a Christian, Protestant, public intellectual. And now he's watching his pacifist friends and his socialist friends. He's also become a socialist throughout the 1920s because of the perceived failure of democratic capitalism. So so here he is, a socialist and a pacifist in the 1930s. And then what do you have? You have the rise of totalitarian fascism and totalitarian communism. And so now his assumptions, his what were what, what had become settled beliefs for him, his his socialism, his pacifism, now they're being upended by the realities of the world in which he finds himself. What how would you say that all of these different experiences kind of like formed what his core beliefs were. You talked about his pacifism, but also maybe his approaches to realism or his approaches to sin. Yeah, Morgan, here's, here's a quote from Niebuhr that gives a little insight. He says, uh, I think this is like around 1940-41. He says, I must confess that the gradual unfolding of my theological ideas has come not so much through study as through the pressure of world events. So now what Niebuhr encounters, he encounters evil on a massive scale, institutionalized, taken a political form, particularly now in, in Nazism. And so what that means is he develops this, uh, this uh, political theology now known as Christian realism. And what he's trying to do with, with Christian realism is, is avoid two kind of extreme reactions to world events. One of them on the right, and that's more on kind of the Christian fundamentalist right, which is more or less withdrawn from world politics and is, is, and is focused almost exclusively on issues of personal salvation, not involved in, in world affairs, in public issues. That, from Niebuhr's perspective, is the error on the right. But the error on the left now is, is a utopian response to the world and trying to come up with utopian schemes, pacifist schemes, in the face of an intractable, devouring evil. And Christian realism is an attempt to navigate between these two extremes. Is there another group or ideologies pushing back which would be to divide the world into children of light and children of darkness, as the title of his book goes, so that he would be, even though he recognizes totalitarianism as an evil, was he already thinking that to approach it as a pure evil and us as a pure good is also a problem that needs to be addressed? Well, that's an excellent question, Mark, and that is part of Niebuhr's appeal. Uh, he also rejects, along with rejecting hard left and hard right, he also does reject this, this view of America as a city on a hill, uh, as a chosen nation, as somehow having clean hands as it engages in the world. And Niebuhr has a kind of a great response to that uh, in one of his essays. I think it's in his, in his collection of essays, Christianity and Power Politics. He says, well, uh, of course we don't have clean hands, and I'm paraphrasing now, 
But no nation ever has clean hands when it tries to engage in in the messy, sinful realities of this world. So you're right. He doesn't want to uh, put America on a pedestal. That phrase from Niebuhr, the irony of American history, we like to think of ourselves as a great crusading, avenging, pure nation, democratic nation, and yet we're fraught with our own sins our own injustices right from the get-go. That's why I think so many on the left love Niebuhr. We can get to why I think that left-wing perspective on Niebuhr is deeply flawed in in so many ways, but that is his appeal uh, among people like Barack Obama, etc. Yeah, we definitely want to touch on that later, but let's actually just stick to stuff that made him controversial and really polemic during his own lifetime. I want to hear kind of where he did sit among the, the intellectuals and the thinking of his time. Niebuhr really aggravated people on the left because he he ran as a socialist in 1930 for Congress. By 1940, as the fascist menace is making its presence known in the world and Nazi Germany is devouring one country after another in Europe, he breaks with the Socialist Party and he strongly denounces the, the utopian delusions on the left, the idea that all international problems and aggressions can be dealt with through a calm, reasoned diplomacy. Niebuhr goes after that. That's, a, he t- that's an axe to the tree. I mean, he takes that thinking to the woodshed and that makes him deeply controversial among people on the left. I think the way he... The reason that he became controversial, I think, among people on the right would be he's not willing to give America a pass either. He comes to believe that, yeah, the United States has to stand up for civilization. And it becomes kind of one of the last the last bulwarks against tyranny, both of a fascist variety and a communist variety. But he won't give America a pass because of his, I think, his own socialist leanings, his his more liberal leanings in a political sense. He's very good about... uh, identifying uh, the the institutionalized problems in the United States, the racism, the economic inequalities, of course, in the 1930s and 1940s. And that makes him controversial among people on the right who really aren't willing to admit America's historic failings. So what actually did make him popular, given that... <laughs> Everybody seems to be mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think because Niebuhr was so vindicated in so many ways. He was certainly vindicated in the critique of, of Nazi Germany and the need for America to engage in the war. Remember, as late as 1941, November of 1941, journals like the Christian Century, a more uh, left-of-center, pro- quote-unquote, progressive magazine, were failing to make the, the clear distinctions between democratic capitalism, American democratic capitalism, and Nazi Germany. I mean, the editor of the Christian Century uh, said that the war against Germany would be just another war for imperialism. And Niebuhr had no patience for that kind of ideology, and he took it to the woodshed. Uh, So he was vindicated. He clearly was vindicated with with the Second World War, what the pretensions and the ambitions of the Nazis were. And then also, I think, he was a strong Cold Warrior. Even though he was severely critical of the United States, he had absolutely no patience for the communist sympathizers in the 1950s. And I think you really could argue that he's vindicated in that way as well. You know, one thing that he's really well known for, as you've mentioned, is just kind of his position on how deeply flawed countries are, this idea of sin, which has made him popular or unpopular, depending on who you're talking to. What was the origin of those beliefs and why were they so important to him? One of the things that uh, many of us really uh, admire about Niebuhr was his attempt as a Protestant thinker, Protestant public intellectual, to reintroduce into the public discourse the concept of the fall original sin, that it permeates everything, individuals, institutions, and nations. And no matter how just our cause is, 
there's going to be some element of sin involved in that cause. That's what's so remarkable about Niebuhr at, at a time in the 1930s and 40s, when, let's face it, even then, the doctrine of original sin had fallen out of favor, at least in the elite circles, in academic circles, in scientific circles, in political circles. And here's this Protestant theologian, incredibly learned guy, very serious thinker, saying, no, wait a minute, the Christians are on to something with this doctrine of the fall, and our politics has to be viewed through that lens. That was a pretty gutsy thing to do in the 1930s and 40s. My understanding that in many respects, if I can put it this way, he was soft on classical themes of Christian orthodoxy, but he seems, on certain themes, he seems to be more orthodox than the orthodox. That's exactly right. I, he is accused by some. I think Stanley Howard has, has accused him of being soft on Christian theology, but but frankly, I think that's because Niebuhr was so tough on guys like Harwas and his pacifism. I think he's much more orthodox on these issues that many give him credit for. Yeah, and he supports that not only with allusions to the biblical doctrine, but as I recall, he does allude to the the fall in the biblical sense, but he supports it with all sorts of other literature to suggest how pervasive this theme is in Western literature altogether. And I think that makes that makes the argument more pervasive, and it doesn't feel like a religious argument. Now it feels like a philosophical political argument. One of my critiques of the way Christians engage the political sphere right now is they see an issue, they see the moral dilemmas of the issue or the moral problem in the issue, and they, the first thing they do is they start quoting scripture about why we don't believe that. And that's just not going to be very persuasive except to a bunch of other Christians. And if you want to persuade the public sphere that a problem has moral dimensions, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to do something else than that or beyond that. Yes, you're right. That's one of Niebuhr's gifts. I think he was probably in some ways, he had the gift of the pastor and the apologist. He was able to communicate these deeply biblical ideas in a public grammar that could be widely understood. And I think that's something that's missing, frankly, among many of our Christian uh, thinkers or pastors today. They don't know how to speak with the public grammar. Niebuhr had that ability, and it was really needed, incredibly important in the 1930s and 40s. That's one of the reasons he was able to have the access and the influence. He was meeting with people at the State Department as you get into the 1940s and 50s. He was a voice that political leaders looked to for moral guidance. So does it surprise you at all, Joe, that so many people today still look to him for inspiration? Uh, take, uh, say, on the left, individuals like Barack Obama, who called Reinhold Niebuhr his favorite theologian. And I think part of the appeal on the left is the Niebuhr's critique of the United States with its failings. But my difficulty with that uh, left-wing embrace of, uh, of Niebuhr is that it fails to really deal with the whole of Niebuhr, because, yes, he wants to acknowledge uh, America's injustices and failings, but he also wants to make moral distinctions, and he always did, and that you, you cannot equate the moral failings of the United States with totalitarian regimes, or in our context, radical Islam. And the problem, I think, with many on the left who invoke Niebuhr is they want to use him as an excuse not to act, not to make hard decisions. But one of my favorite quotes from Niebuhr, uh, ambiguous methods are required for the ambiguities of history. And then he goes on and he says, let the medieval perfectionists retire to the monastery where they belong, essentially. So we, in other words, we got to make tough choices in a world that is fraught with sin, uh, in a world that is so scarred by the fall. And I think many uh, Niebuhr admirers on the left don't reckon with his doctrine of sin adequately. And Niebuhr had a Christology. He had a, the he has a doctrine of the atonement that it, it seems to many of us uh, looks pretty orthodox. Let me just read you a quote from Niebuhr uh, that's important in this discussion. He says, the whole point of the Christian doctrine of atonement is that God cannot be merciful without fulfilling within himself and on man's behalf 
the requirement of divine justice. And then he goes on, the biblical answer to the problem of evil in human history is a radical answer, precisely because human evil is recognized as a much more stubborn fact than is realized in some modern versions of the Christian faith. And there he's going after the kind of utopian thinking, the soft peddling of sin, uh, and why that just leads to, to bad theology and to bad politics. You, just in the quotes you're using, suggest another reason for his continuing influence is just the power of his rhetoric is really amazing. Yeah, that's right. There are certain Niebuhr phrases that, boy, they cut to the quick, and, and they leave you really just uh, uh, disarmed, disarmed and wounded, if you take him seriously. Yeah, and I think one of the quote about the atonement, I think, is interesting because he does refer to the atonement— uh, and anyone who's a Christian or understands Christian theology knows exactly what he's referring to. But he does it in a way that's a little more indirect. Yes, that's uh, right. Without just saying Jesus died for our sins. He doesn't use religious language as such to make the point, but he makes it in such a way that you know exactly what he's saying. But again, he's using public vocabulary to say it. And I think that makes it more powerful. Yes, and sometimes that makes him a bit elliptical. It's a little hard sometimes to know what what exactly does he mean. But more often, I think, you get the, the moral force of his argument. There's another great Niebuhr quote I love I just found. He says, the gospel is something more than the law of love. The gospel deals with the fact that men violate the law of love. If you think about that quote in context, that's like in the 1940s. This was the talk from, from the more liberal uh, theologians, the people on the left. They kept talking about the law of love uh, in response to this new international aggression. Lay down the force of arms and let's apply the law of love. And Niebuhr is just, again, going after them with an axe and saying, look, the problem of sin, the intractable problem of evil, it has to be met with force. And we have to strive for justice in this world. And this, I think, is a great part of the appeal of people on the right. We have to strive not for perfect justice, but for relative justice or proximate justice. I suspect that's the reason that guys like Comey are probably drawn to Niebuhr. We have to pursue justice, but perfect justice is not achievable. But some measure of justice in this world is possible, but we're going to have to put our minds to it. We're going to have to think hard and make hard choices. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. So I, I have a bunch of questions now. I put my poli-sci brain on. I was like, all right, if I was going to discuss this in class. And my main thing is, how does one know that they are more moral than another group? Is this something that's based off my own intentions? Like, my intentions are more pure than I think this other groups are. Is it based on outcome? How about the fact that 
it, within a country, you can have varying degrees of immorality or morality wherever you live. I mean, I just think about how, again, when the United States was fighting World War II, this was still the time when Jim Crow was in its heyday in the South, um, and there were lynchings that were going on. How would you determine your own moral superiority that you can then use to push back against someone who's more morally depraved than you? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fair question, Morgan. And I think Niebuhr answers it at two levels. The one level certainly is the philosophical and the theoretical. What are your stated ideals? What are your ideals? And we can come back to that in a moment. But then secondarily, what you just suggested, well, what are the results on the ground? Democratic capitalism in Niebuhr's day for all of its problems. And remember the not only institutionalized racism in the United States, but also, of course, the Great Depression where it seems that democratic capitalism is failing. Uh, but then when Niebuhr looks at the, the actual results on the ground and compares them to these rival worldviews, okay, what, what actually is Nazi Germany producing? What exactly is the Soviet Union producing on the ground in real time compared to the United States? And then in Niebuhr's mind, there's just no comparison. We have, we, we've got to be able to stand and defend Western civilization. So for example, Here's, a, here's another quote from Niebuhr that maybe speaks to the point. He says, American Christianity is all too prone to disavow its responsibilities for the preservation of our civilization against the perils of totalitarian aggression. And when he's talking about American Christianity, he, he means liberal Christianity. He means the Christian Century magazine in particular. We have responsibilities to defend Western civilization with all of its flaws because the alternative, according to Niebuhr, is so barbaric. It's so dehumanizing. In that sense, there's no comparison. Results on the ground really do matter. I'm wondering if we can jump a little bit to the present. I'm really interested in terms of like what have been some of the unintended consequences of political leaders who have been shaped by Niebuhr's ideas. One of the people that came to my mind uh, more recent, but not in right now in this moment, is Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., because uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King was also a great admirer of Reinhold Niebuhr. And I suspect, I haven't studied King's life as closely as I have some others, but I suspect that one of the things that uh, that King took from Niebuhr was the idea of relative justice, proximate justice, and we have to be willing to work for it. And I think that's one of the reasons that King did not disavow the United States and condemn it and call for violent revolution as many people on his left were doing then, and some now even today, of course, uh, which is tragic. Uh, Martin Luther King wanted to go back to the, if you read his letter from Birmingham jail, he wanted to go back to America's founding ideals. And this, I think, is also a Niebuhr insight. What does the nation, what does this democratic republic stand for in its founding documents? Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's where Martin Luther King took a, a lesson from Niebuhr. Go back to the founding documents, call the nation back to its founding ideals. That's, the, that's his letter from Birmingham jail. As you reach for proximate justice, a more just society than you now have, you're not going to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's a very Niebuhr idea. It's very much true of Martin Luther King. And I, I think that was a great constructive influence on King's thinking. I think another influence on King's thinking is his Niebuhr helped him realize that people in power who are perpetuating injustices uh, will not change their view or change their uh, their uh, their actions based on 
sheer argument, that they have to be confronted with a force, even a kind of violence. Although he was a pacifist, he still thought of his uh, demonstrations as ways of forcing the issue of political leaders to have to confront what they were doing and what they were practicing. And he, he deliberately, yes, instigated moments where the, the police and the protesters had to come up against one another because he recognized they're not going to change unless there's some force applied. Now, in his case, it had to be nonviolent force, but it was force nonetheless. And he did, he did talk about that a lot. That's exactly right, Mark. It's a great point. Institutionalized wickedness is not going to just willingly lay down its arms. It's going to have to be confronted either through nonviolent resistance like King or, in the example of international aggression, through the use of military force. You know, uh, Morgan, another maybe uh, answer, let's bring it up to the present here, uh, and I don't mean to be partisan in all this, but I think when Barack Obama invoked Niebuhr, I understand what he was trying to do given the, the post-Bush era and the controversy over the, the Iraq war and all the rest of it. But I think by focusing so much on America's failings, which, which, which Barack Obama did repeatedly, I think it prevented him from acting in ways that would have been useful to international peace and security. And of course, the, the conflict in Syria is the, is the great example. Uh, at the beginning there, uh, there was just a reluctance in any way to try to seriously challenge the regime of Bashar al-Assad and to apply some kind of military response to really what we all agree now are gross human rights abuses, violations of international law. And what has how now has mushroomed, of course, into this international disaster, the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, the chemical weapons, and on it goes. And there are consequences for not acting, which is a great Niebuhr lesson of the 1930s, the doctrine of appeasement, which reigned right up until Pearl Harbor in this country. I think it's super interesting to talk about it in light of foreign policy. And yet there is this part of me that just says it does seem to give license to a lot of foreign policy actions that leaders might take. And then they almost kind of have a cop out. They can use force, military force, in a sense, prematurely or inappropriately, because they're just saying this is the realistic way to deal with this problem because we have to confront. Or maybe you could even use it, quote unquote, at the right time. But there's all different types of things that you can't have foreseen, regardless of how people feel about what Bush's intentions were to go into Iraq. I think that most people can agree that there was a lot of really unfortunate to say mildly things that have happened as a result well, of that. Unintended kind of consequences. Unintended yeah. consequences that, that, that occurred there. Um, and so how do you keep it from from po- politicians or political leaders from just saying, well, like, well, I'm going to do this and it's already, you know, we're, we're headed for proximate justice anyway. If the Bush administration had read and studied Niebuhr a little more, I think they would have been much more sober about the consequences of an invasion in Iraq because uh, Niebuhr, I'm sure, would have warned, uh, once you take out that political authority, you're not going to see Democ- a Jeffersonian democracy just sprout into existence because of the nature of sin and the nature of the will to power. There is going to be a power vacuum. All kinds of wicked forces are going to try to fill it. I could easily imagine a Reinhold Niebuhr giving that counsel to the Bush administration on the eve of the Iraq war. And that would have been very good and necessary counsel, right? Yeah. And he also, I don't think, would blink at the notion that any action we perform, no matter how noble or thought through, is going to have unintended consequences. And some of those unintended consequences are going to be the creation of more injustice in some way. Maybe not an equally bad injustice, but nonetheless an injustice that's going to have to be dealt with at some point. You know, this is part of Niebuhr's insight. We don't go into any conflict with with 
perfectly clean hands or pure motives. We have to try to achieve a greater measure of justice than when we started, knowing that our best intentions, best endeavors are fraught with peril. And, he, and again, it goes back to the doctrine of sin. This world is so shot through with the consequences of, of the historic biblical fall, the idea of the biblical fall, that we have to approach every noble endeavor with some measure of humility. That is a great message for statesmen. It's a great message for anybody in any realm of life. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes of his is, democracy is giving proximate solutions to intractable problems. Help me here. Uh, we are editors at a, an evangelical magazine, and many of our fellow believers in this movement can be, be be very idealistic, and they have visions of, there's a lot of language about transforming the world and changing the world and changing our culture and changing our community. On the one hand, I admire that idealism because it does get them out of, out of bed in the morning, and it does cause them to do some heroic and sacrificial things to try to make a difference in the world. On the other hand, I'm an instinctual Niburian who thinks they're not going to transform the world or their culture, and they're only going to make incremental progress at best. Is Niburian's realism, is that something for us intellectuals and people who sit behind the desk to examine the world and to understand the world like? I mean, would this be a very helpful philosophy for these idealists who are actually out there on the front lines trying to change the world, don't they have to have kind of a dreamy, utopian idealism to get them out of bed in the morning? Uh, you know, I'm uh, an Italian-American, so I'm a natural romantic in, in all kinds of ways. But um, Niebuhr has been a great help to me as a thinker. I encountered his essay called An End to Illusions, which I think he wrote in 1940 when he broke with the Socialist Party and began to argue for some kind of American engagement uh, in the in the gathering storm there in Europe. And I've been influenced by Niebuhr since reading that essay, gosh, 15 plus years ago now, about, yeah, you, you want to have a Christian hope and vision for a better world, for trying to bring uh, some aspect of the kingdom of heaven into my world, into the sphere of influence that I have. That's the part of the Christian calling, it seems to me. Where Niebuhr is so helpful is the constant reminder that we cannot recreate heaven on earth. We're not going to usher in the kingdom of heaven through our best, most noble efforts. It's simply not going to happen. But that doesn't discourage me from pursuing my calling and for uh, opening up my life and my talents uh, and my resources to God to be used in a way that can advance his kingdom in some small way. And it may be a large way, who knows, but at least in some small way. Niebuhr is that great check, I think, on hubris and on utopian delusions about what we can accomplish. That's a necessary thing, I think. And it, it, does, it hasn't caused me, I think, to sacrifice uh, my sense of idealism and hopefulness, though. Speaking as a former pastor, the thing that concerns me about idealism is not the vision or the hope. It's the despair that follows almost immediately when, when one is confronted with opposition or one fails to accomplish one's goal and the despair that might lead to lack of activity altogether, lack of action altogether, and would withdraw one in, into kind of a fundamentalist isolationism, even if they're not personally fundamentalist, but an isolationism, the world's going to hell, I can't make a difference, I'm just going to live my life. So that's my concern about the idealism, uh, is that it could lead to actually less positive activism in the world on behalf of Christ and his kingdom. So while you guys are talking about idealism and so forth, first of all, I had that verse, without vision, a people perish. 
<laughs> go through my head, which I'm positive I'm taking out of context in a way. But I was trying to think of like where who it is important to to have vision. So generally, the people that do get involved with politics are people who are going to be a little bit more idealistic. And they often go in there because they feel like I have efficacy in my country and I can do something about that, at least when we're talking in the American political realm. I think that Niebuhr has great things to say to a group of people who are prone to be idealistic, though I'm sure lots of people have more cynical motives. And it may actually temper some of the burnout and cynicism that you do get, you know, from people that are have been in Washington a little bit longer. But then I was also trying to figure out for people who aren't in politics, what type of vision and idealism do they need? Or how do you kind of convince them to be part of a greater cause, um, given that they not might not be prone to idealism? And where does idealism fit into that? Again, going back to that verse that I'm sorry if I'm taking out of context, it is important to have something that you do feel like you are working towards. Um, and maybe it doesn't have to be presented at the same level of like a new heaven. But I do need to know that like something is going to be different as a result of what I am working for. He does talk a lot, uh, a lot about justice, about the need to strive for a more just world. Social justice would be the phrase that we would use and Niebuhr use it as well. But the idea of our obligation as followers of Christ, as his disciples, in our own sphere of life, to try to bring about a more just world. I mean, that's it seems to me that's a deeply challenging uh, message. That's one of the reasons uh, Niebuhr had so little patience for those on his hard right who were concerned about personal salvation, an incredibly important issue, nothing more important at the end of the day than eternal salvation. And yet having that doctrine and then not seeing any obligation to engage in the world around us, Niebuhr had no patience for that. And I think that's also a, a kind of message that continues to be important uh, for young people, for people in my station in life as well. I do think another way to think about that is I think most people every day want to do something that they think makes a difference. But there's part of the Christian ethic that says we're supposed to do what is right and good and just, and we leave the results to God. So I think if we our ethics depends on our effectiveness, we are going to end up being in despair. If our action depends on faithfulness, this is the right thing to do at the right time. I think we have a much better chance of hanging in there for the long term, knowing that some of the things we do, they're not going to work, but that's not our job. Our job is to do what's right and good and just in a given situation. Knowing there may be unintended consequences. And there may be unintended consequences that make some things worse. <laughs> but that's not our job. God is providentially overseeing the world, and we'll let him run the world. We'll do the thing we're called to do, which is love our neighbors the best we can. You know, there there is an overlap between Niebuhr's life and evangelicals ascending, I guess, into, into the public square. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just talk about what his relationship with evangelicals was. You know, if you think about it, in the 1930s, it, you don't really have evangelicals in, in major positions in the in the public sector, right? You have the emergence of Billy Graham in the 1940s and 50s, and uh, and the Crusades, and that that kind of spiritual uh, revival going on at that level of the civil society. But boy, you know, it's it's I'm hard pressed to think of uh, notable evangelicals outside of maybe a Carl Henry in the 1950s. Uh, launches Christianity Today magazine. I don't know that Niebuhr had a relationship with Carl Henry. I I haven't discovered that. Maybe, Mark, you would know something about that. I know he was dismissive of any, anyone who was religiously conservative, which was usually amounted to fundamentalists. He, he disparaged them quite heartily. I think he looked down on Billy Graham. He didn't have much uh, respect for him and what he was trying to do. How evangelicals are involved in the public square today is completely different than the 40s and 50s. So it's hard to know uh, how we would evaluate us today. Yeah, he didn't have many good models, I don't think, of, uh, of evangelical public engagement. Except evangelistic preachers. 
at revivals, which he didn't he didn't think it was enough, obviously. It was loving God, but it wasn't loving the neighbor. So Yeah, and I'm not saying there weren't any in the nineteen thirties and forties, but we it's we, you're hard pressed to think of them at a, on a national level, right? President Harry Truman uh was a man of, of Christian conviction, Protestant Christian conviction. He would not have identified himself as an evangelical, but there was a moral seriousness to Harry Truman uh as he guided the nation through the early uh, phases of the Cold War. And Niebuhr was brought into that administration as an advisor at, at different points. So he could mix with people like that who are pretty serious people, morally serious, religiously serious people. So just to bring everything full circle, we ran an article last week about Billy Graham and Harry Truman's terrible relationship. <laughs> um, essentially because Billy Graham spilled all the details of their conversation, which I think is fascinating. And then to also bring it back to what we were talking about earlier about how um, you know Comey had written this paper juxtaposing Falwell and Niebuhr's you know ideology and beliefs, and it does seem like a lot of least of like evangelical I don't know political ideology that I've personally grown up with at least has not really been Niebuhr influenced. No, not at all. It's very idealistic uh, in the sense that it think it it is idealistic that if we just politic in a certain way for certain moral issues that we can change America back to what it used to be or should be, especially the religious right. Mm -hmm. And uh, Niebuhr would have no patience for any of that, for sure. Just the idealism that it's that simple. Thanks, everyone, for a great discussion. As a reminder to all of our listeners, continue the discussion, disagree with us, agree, rant, etc. On Facebook, we're on facebook.com slash ctpodcasts. We're on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, and it's a time for everyone to share something that will help our listeners get to know us better and also where they can be found on the internet afterwards. So are you ready, Joe? <laughs> I'm trying to get ready. Go ahead, Morgan. <laughs> All right. You're the first one who's made me go first, but I'll do it anyway. So I guess this is kind of a precious moment. I have my French test tomorrow, which is um, I'm completing my second level of French at the French school that I'm at. And I said it's kind of because it's very humbling to be bad at a foreign language. However, I realized I'm less bad than I was a couple weeks ago as I've gone back to study. So that is encouraging to me. But conjugating French verbs is far worse than it ever was in Spanish. Really? I thought it was very similar to Spanish. They just have so many irregular verbs. I mean, I know Spanish has a bunch of irregular words, too. Anyway, every you can't really tell how hard something is, you know, when you're only two classes in deep. But I still feel happy because this has been one of my goals for forever to learn French. And so even if I'm a little bit nervous about this test and we have an oral presentation tomorrow, I'm still glad that it is happening. So you already have that. Spanish mm -hmm. and obviously English. Mm -hmm. Anything else? No, not really. I mean, I speak a tiny bit of Chinese, but... Like when I say tiny bit, I really mean a tiny bit. It will exhaust That's itself impressive. in five minutes. Yeah, well, I hope that French gets to that level that Spanish gets to. Then I would feel very impressive about myself, but not now. <laughs> and I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Mark, will give Joe some more time, so do you want to okay. go? Okay. Well, last weekend I spent it in uh, New Orleans with my daughter and son-in-law. And normally, I, as I said, they, they could take us to unusual restaurants. But my wife requested that we go to a, a destination in New Orleans that we hadn't been to, that everybody goes to. It's called the Commander's Palace, and it's a type of restaurant I really love. Have to wear a sport coat, even a tie. The waiters are very formal. It's a very formal dinner, but it was a very fine meal, very expensive meal that the father-in-law father had to pay for. But there you go. <laughs> but it was a 
just a really enjoyable hour and a half there. I know you always have a really great time when you go hang out with them. Yes, there indeed. They're entrepreneurial pursuits. Exactly. Restaurateurs, successful ones, which is kind of unusual in this world. Pretty awesome for them. Hey, where can people read your newsletter? My newsletter is called The Galley Report, and you can find it by going to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, and it'll feature the, the, the recent edition. They come out every Friday, but it also gives you an opportunity to subscribe. That's where I link to various articles, make commentary, hopefully in ways that uh, will help you think more deeply about your world and how God calls you to live and serve that world. All right, Joe, we gave you five more minutes. <laughs> and I'll make a plug for the Gallery Report. That's terrific work you're doing there, Mark. Please keep it up. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll play off the language theme and the family theme as an Italian-American. I, one of the most heartening experiences recently has been with my family, my, my mom's side. This is the Aiello side of the family. It was kind of a family reunion there on Long Island, and uh, my aunt, my dear Aunt Camella, who's become kind of the family matriarch, and all the cousins, and I've got a lot of first cousins, I, uh, not just the food and the sharing stories, but I think what was so fun was uh, having hearing from different cousins a particular story, and then hearing for the first time kind of their perspective on what actually <laughs> happened. <laughs> I had my version, then they had their version, and it was just filling it all out in wonderful ways, just shocking ways, just terrific <laughs> stuff. How many cousins do you have? On the Aiello side, it's like 19 cousins on the Aiello oh side gosh. and like 19 on the Lacanti side. So, what? Uh, you it, almost have 40 cousins. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of cousins, and they're, they really are extended family. It's one of the themes I, I do hope our pastors, our evangelical pastors, give a little more attention to the idea of extended family as a great gift from God. Yeah, I would love to hear a sermon about how to be a good cousin. I'm not even kidding. Like, I would love to know what that looks like, because I am not a good cousin right now. Yeah. (laughs) Of me, too. (laughs) Because I know I'm a lousy cousin. Hey, this was a really fun podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us as we did this. As a reminder, if you're just tuning in for the first time, you can subscribe to Quick to Listen via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcast is a great place um, if you are going to because that is the best place to leave us reviews and tell us how you feel about the show. Um, so thank you to everyone who has already done that and we appreciate all of you who continue to leave reviews there. Our producers are Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Thank you so much for your great work. We will see everyone next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.